38-year-old entrepreneur, Derek Ham, was everything that prospective investors could have ever wanted when it came to investing their, their hard-earned money in the oil and gas industry. He was the, the CEO, the chief executive officer of a successful company that owned and operated 16,000 oil wells in seven states. He was related to the billionaire uh, oil man from Oklahoma by the name of Harold Ham, which gave him unlimited access and to financial resources and, and to oil industry insiders. But that was just the half of it. Derek was also a highly decorated war hero. Graduated from West Point, served in the U.S. Army Special Forces. Uh, during his time in the military, he was uh, deployed on multiple missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. And in the process, he was awarded the, the Purple Heart, the Bronze Star, the Silver Star, the Distinguished Service Cross for numerous acts of selfless valor. And given his impeccable credentials, his investment clients, they entrusted him with over $2 million of their hard-earned money. But there was a problem. The image that Derek portrayed wasn't really who he was. He wasn't related to that billionaire by the name of Harold Hamm. He wasn't the, the CEO of a, a, a wealthy oil dribbling, drilling company. And while Derek had served in the National Guard, he wasn't a graduate of West Point. He wasn't a member of the Special Forces. And he had never been awarded any medals for valor in combat. Derek, he was a fraud. And according to the U.S. Attorney's press release, that within hours of him receiving investors' funds, he spent the money on himself and his family, including expensive jewelry, vehicles, and vacations to expensive resorts, traveling there on private planes. Now, it's not surprising, Derek's deception, it all only caught up to him. And he was indicted by a federal grand jury on 33 counts of wire fraud, money laundering, and violations of the Stolen Valor Act. He was sentenced to over 11 years in prison in order to pay $2.3 million in restitution. And when I read something like that, the first thing that, that comes to my mind is how can someone possibly do that? How can someone deceive people that way? And it it's, uh, seems to be surprising at times, but the reality is it shouldn't be surprising because according to the Bible, deceit comes standard with every human heart. Jeremiah 17 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Brothers and sisters, our hearts, they are deceitful. And to make matters worse, that deceit 
isn't just directed from us towards other people. That deceit is directed from us, in many cases, to ourselves. And like Derek Ham, you and I, we possess the ability to deceive others as well as the ability to deceive ourselves. And it's this ability to deceive ourselves, which is the reason why, why our preaching team and why our elder board decided to focus the first eight weeks of 2024 on this series entitled Genuine Follower. And the reason we did this is because we're concerned that many of us have friends and family members who have deceived themselves into believing that they are Christian when they really aren't. And if truth be told, there are probably some of us who also believe that we are Christians when we really aren't. And while Derek's pretending to be an oil tycoon and, and a, a military hero, uh, temporarily cost him 11 years of freedom and $2.3 million, you and I pretending to be a Christian will eternally cost us so much more. Jesus speaks to this very issue in Matthew chapter 7. This is what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who deals the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is warning us with those words that it is possible to believe that we are Christian when we really are not. And as leaders, we don't want that for ourselves, and we definitely don't want that for you. And so we want to show you from God's word through this message series what it means to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ so that we might one day spend eternity in the new heaven and new earth with Christ. Last week, Pastor Ben taught us that a genuine follower has an of Jesus it has an ever-growing allegiance to him. That, that every day we, we put our allegiance tighter and tighter with Jesus and less and less with the world. And today what I want to show you is that a genuine follower has a discernible spirit of repentance. And in order to do that, we are going to examine a section of Scripture that is a case study on what real repentance looks like. It's found in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 was written by King David, who was the ancient king of Israel some 3,000 years ago. And it's a psalm of repentance that he penned after he was found out. He was, he was found out to have, have been sleeping with another man's wife, the man was in David's army, and he was deployed to war. And not only did David sleep with this man's wife, but he impregnated this woman. And when he discovers that his, this woman is impregnated, he, he tries to cover up his sin by, by bringing the soldier off the field, 
back to, his, to the soldier's home and, and hope that the soldier will be intimate with his wife so that he might think that the baby is actually his. And he gets the soldier drunk to convince him to do this. But the soldier is a better man drunk than David is sober. And a man will not sleep with his wife because his fellow soldiers are fighting in the field. And so after this husband honorably refuses to sleep with his wife out of respect for his fellow soldiers, David arranges for him to be killed. That, brothers and sisters, that's bad stuff. But here's the really uh, incredible thing about this. What, what makes it worse is David is called a man after God's own heart. He's a follower of God. He is ultimately in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Yet he does these incredibly horrific things. But his story doesn't end with his sin. He does something about his sin, which is called repentance. And I want to take a look at it this morning. If you have a Bible with you, make your way to the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 51. Open your Bible to about halfway. You're probably going to find it almost right away. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Please make your way and grab one of those or ask a neighbor to pass it down to you. But use one of the Bibles that's in the room. It's on page 474, Psalm, chapter, or Psalm 51. If you're able to stand in honor of God's word, would you please do so? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a, a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold a, a willing spirit within me. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
So, so what exactly is repentance? Let me, let me give you a, a working definition from, from theologian Wayne Groom. He's, he says this, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. You see, repentance is, is far more than us simply being sorry for our actions. It's far more than even uh, great remorse for what we've done. You see, repentance must ultimately be coupled with, with this heartfelt decision to turn away from the obe- disobedience of sin and ultimately turn towards obedience to God. Now, we get this because every one of us has been sinned against by someone else. We know the hurt. We know the betrayal. We know the anger and the broken trust. And those who have done the wounding of us, they fall into three different categories, broad general categories. Number one, there are those who could care less that they have hurt us. These are people that, that we need to keep it at harm's, arm's left length. Uh, people with, with whom we need to maintain extraordinarily healthy boundaries. That's the first group. People who could care less whether they hurt us. Group number two. Those who feel bad for what they've done. They've even apologized, but they haven't changed. It's the spouse or the significant other who has cheated on us. They feel bad. They, they, they've, they've given us a tear-filled felt apologies. They're begging for a second chance. But they're not willing to be held accountable. They're not willing to, to share their passwords. They're not willing to provide us with access to text messages or emails or voicemails or phone logs whenever we ask. They're they're not willing to to keep us posted on on where they are or where they're going at a given time. They're, They're not willing to do whatever it takes to separate themselves from the person that they had this affair with. Or it's the addict who deeply regrets that that he or she has fallen back into their addiction, but who's not willing to commit to faithfully attending uh, AA or Celebrate Recovery or or Inpatient Rehab or Teen Challenge. It's the fiscally irresponsible loved one who who feels bad for what they've done, and they say they're going to be more responsible with their money, but, but they're not willing to give up their credit cards. They're not willing to entrust you with with some of their resources so that you can keep it safe from them. They're not willing to go and and work a second job. These people might be sorry. They might be really sorry. But folks, they are certainly not repentant. Because without repentance, there isn't any hope for real change. Now, not surprisingly, there's another group. There's a group of people who actually repent, 
who actually turn from what they're doing and turn ultimately to God. And repentance plays a, a key role in the life of a Christian because every one of us, we've sinned against the holy God of the universe. And the repentance that we read about in the Bible, it plays out in two specific areas. First of all, there is a need for you and I to, to repent when in the initial process of, of salvation, uh, where, where we come and we make a commitment for the very first time to be a follower of Jesus Christ. There's a repentance that comes with that process. And secondly, there is a repentance that comes uh, after we are saved, where, where we regularly come to God and repent of our sins because we regularly sin against the God of, of, uh, the, God of the universe and, and we desire to have this process in our lives where we become more and more free from sin and more and more obedient to Jesus. So let's talk about those a little bit. Let's talk for just a, a moment about what does repentance look like in the process of salvation when we come to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, first and foremost, we need to understand that salvation is ultimately the work of of holy God. Ephesians 2 tells us this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Every one of us prior to becoming a Christian, we're dead in our sins and our trespasses. And whether we knew it or not, whether we liked it or not, whether we're willing to admit it or not, we ultimately, according to God's word, we're following Satan, the evil one, and we were living for ourselves. We, we were doing our own fleshly desires, whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted, actively sinning with little or no remorse. And as a result, Paul tells us that we were under the wrath of God. That is a horrible place to be. Fortunately, that's not the end of the story. Look at what comes next in Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, in the beginning of verse 4, we find some of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible. You're dead, but... But the God of the universe, he works something. Although we're, we're spiritually dead, God in love, he acts towards us. And notice what he does. It's all about what he does, nothing about what you and I do. He makes us alive. He raises us up. He saves us. It's not a result of our own doing, of our own power, of our own merit. It is purely the divine action 
of the incredible loving God of the universe. So here's how it all works quickly when it comes to our salvation. There's a process. God makes the first move. It's called election. He reaches out to this dead body and begins to draw it to himself. God must be the initiator because we are spiritually dead without Jesus. And then God acts again and he exposes us to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ. He places someone, another a Christian in our lives, or he places something in our lives, it might be a Bible track or a sermon, evangelistic movie. Many times you just start reading the Bible and it exposes us to what Jesus has done for us. And then God does the next thing. He regenerates us. This is how you and I become born again. Regeneration, it's, it's the secret work that, that God does which imparts spiritual life into us. And this, it's solely the work of God. And once all of that happens, then comes our part. Conversion. This is where we willingly, we respond to the gospel and, and we repent of our sins and we place our trust in Jesus for salvation. Jesus speaks of this very thing. In the very beginning of Mark, he says this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe or have faith in the gospel. Now, according to Dr. Grudem, our conversion has two components based on what Jesus has said here. The first is belief in the gospel. And, and it's this faith that we have. And as, it, it, as this faith relates to our conversion, there's a couple things that need to come with that faith. First of all, it's this. A basic knowledge of who Jesus is. That's the beginning. It's, there's a basic knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done. But that is coupled then with an acceptance of those facts. That not only do I have knowledge of them, but I actually agree with them and, and I believe in them. And then there's a decision that comes based on that, based on that knowledge, based on that acceptance. There's a decision to put my trust in Christ. Now, the second component of conversion is repentance. And repentance also involves knowledge it also involves acceptance, and it also involves a decision. We, we get the basic knowledge that sin is actually bad, that it's wrong. And we've got this, whoops, pull my glasses on my face. We've got this, this problem with being Italian. Uh, can't keep your hands under control. But we get this basic knowledge that sin is wrong. And then we accept what the Bible teaches about the sin. And, and because we accept it, we, we understand now and accept it that God hates sin. And that, that the sin that we commit isn't just against another human being. It's actually against the holy God of the universe who has given us life. And so it leads to a decision to renounce sin, to turn from it and lead a life that is in obedience to God's word. And it's important to understand that this faith and this repentance during conversion, 
They come at the same time. You, 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 you don't have faith and then repent. And you don't repent and then have faith. Because faith without repentance isn't faith. And repentance without faith isn't repentance. So that's what repentance looks like when it comes to being saved or born again or whatever word you want to use. It's this one-time act where we willingly choose to turn away from our sin and to turn to Jesus. But there's a second component that's not a one-time act. That It's a continual act of repentance because you and I, although we've been redeemed by Jesus, we continue to sin. And because we continue to sin, we continue to need to leave, live lives of repentance. And that repentance is in the process of something that comes with a theological term called sanctification. Sanctification is the continuing process in our life where we become more and more like Jesus, where we hate sin more and more and love to obey more and more. And this is where David and Psalm 51 come in. We can be confident that King David was saved just as you and I are saved, not by obedience through God's law, through some human effort, but by placing his faith in the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, just as you and I place our faith in the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. In Romans chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul shows us that, that through faith and belief that all of the Old Testament uh, saints, they were actually saved. And he does so by using Abraham, that, that great hero of the Old Testament, as an example. He says this, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say, the Apostle Paul asks? Abraham believed he had faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see, King David and Abraham and you and I, we are saved by, by faith and faith alone. But where our faith looks back to, to the Messiah's sacrifice for our sin, King David's faith looked forward to the promise of the Messiah's sacrifice for our sins. So here we have a, a, a saved King David who does some really gnarly things. Lust, which leads to adultery. Adultery, which leads to deceit. And deceit, which ultimately leads to murder. And it would be a great understatement to say that, that, that David was struggling in the sanctification process. Huge understatement. He's not struggling in the sanctification process. He is failing miserably in the sanctification process. He has blown it huge in, in horrific ways. But then something happens. And it's recorded in the preface of Psalm 51, which I didn't put on the screen earlier. But here it is now. The beginning of Psalm 51, there is this, this little segment of Hebrew that's an introduction to it. 
This is to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. You see, God in his mercy sent Nathan the prophet to confront David of his sin. And brothers and sisters, it was a huge confrontation. Now, we don't have time to, to read through it, but if you get a, a, like a spare five minutes later on this afternoon and you go to 2 Samuel 12, you'll, you'll see how this thing plays out. It's actually, it's beautiful. I mean, it is, it is amazing how, how Nathan sucks David in to expose his sin. But Nathan's rebuke wasn't the only thing that gets David's attention. God allows this precious little baby that had been conceived through David's adulterous behavior with Bathsheba to become sick and die. If any of you have ever lost a child or you have ever known someone who's lost a child, is absolutely devastating. And David is destroyed. And he is destroyed because he is now fully experiencing the consequences of his sin. But rather than wallow in his sin, and rather than perhaps what a lot of people do, is actually double down on their sin. Something bad happens, we just sin all the more. But that's not what David does. David doesn't double down on his sin. He doesn't try to medicate his pain away. Instead, David repents. And how he does serves as a great example to you and me. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You see, the first thing that happens for repentance ever to happen is for you and I to recognize that we have sinned. David comes right out and says, these are my transgressions. This is what I have done. He owns it. Oh, for how I would wish that people who come to me at times would own their sin. It would make things so much easier. But he owns their sin. He doesn't blame anybody else. He doesn't make excuses. It is his sin. And it is his sin alone. And he realizes now that this sin, it's a permanent part of his life. You can't take it back. The genie is out of the bottle. There, there's this permanent thing that happens. There's, there's no way to make it go away. It's a permanent part of his life. It is so permanent for David. 3,000 years later, 300 people on Oakley Avenue are talking about his sin. That's how permanent it was. Second, repentance recognizes that we deserve we deserve to be punished by God for our sin. That is why 
Can you go, can you bring that slide back up, please? That is why he doesn't say, have justice on me. He, he says, have mercy on me. If he would say, have, have justice on me, he doesn't want justice right now. Justice would be very, very bad for David. You see, justice means we get what we deserve. The innocent get protected. The guilty get punished. Justice for David would be death because David had committed offenses that in the Old Testament are punishable by death. Instead, David begs for that which he doesn't deserve. He begs for God's mercy. And what is the mercy that that he is requesting? He's requesting that that his transgressions be blotted out, his iniquity washed away, his his sins cleansed. Not, not, Not the earthly part of them, but the spiritual part of them. And repentance also recognizes that our sin creates this permanent stain on our lives that only God can ultimately wash away. And some of us, we are painfully aware of the permanence of our sin. We've done stuff that follows us to this very day. And we know that when people look at us, they don't see us. They just see what we've done. And even if nobody else knows, the person staring back at us in the mirror, they know. But some of us also know what David knew. That when we come to God with a contrite heart, when we own our sin, when we plead for mercy, God possesses not only the power, but he possesses the the desire, the will to wipe it away. And he blots out our transgressions and washes away our iniquity and cleanses us of our sin. And all of this is amazing because of the next thing that happens with repentance. Look at verses three and four. For I know my transgressions And my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see, repentance understands that that our sin ultimately is against the holy God of the universe. That thing that we stole from someone, we just didn't steal from them, we stole from God. That adultery that we committed It wasn't just against our spouse. It was against God. That that life that we took, it wasn't just against the person whose life we took. It's against the holy God of the universe. And David understood that. He understood his adultery, his deceit, his his murder. It affected many people the same way that that your sin and my sin affects many people. But it's also an affront against God. God is the lawgiver. He has given laws that are good for us, even though we push back against them. And when we violate them, it's a direct attack 
on the goodness of the God of the universe and his authority and his truth. And because our sin is an offense to God, he has every right to punish us. He's not being mean. He's not being unfair. He is just being holy and righteous. But there's more. Repentance recognizes that only God can fix what sin has destroyed. Look at verses 7 through 12. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Notice how David recognizes he can't make it better. He can't fix it. Only God can fix it. Sometimes we do things in this world that there's no fixing. There's no way to take away the pain that we've inflicted on other people. The only way for it ever to go away is if God in his mercy works in the life of that person. That's the only way that, that, that it, it goes away. And, and David, he needs God spiritually to wash him, to make him clean, to put a right spirit in him. He needs God emotionally to restore joy and gladness. He needs God positionally to restore him back to being in God's presence. And finally, repentance recognizes that God wants to use both the painfulness of our experiences and the goodness of God's restoration for the benefit of others. Folks, don't, don't miss this part. So many people miss this last part. And they miss it because of shame. Don't miss this part. Look at verses 13 to 17. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood, blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. What is David going to do when God restores him from this disaster that he created? Verse 13. He is going to teach transgressors God's way. Verses 14 and 15. He's going to sing aloud of God's righteousness, and he's going to declare God's praises. In other words, David is going to seek out others who are struggling with sin, and he's going to tell his story and all the ugliness of it and all the beauty of God's restoration. He's going to tell of how he sinned, how he hurt God and others with his sin, how he experienced the painful consequences of sin, how he humbly sought out God, how he confessed his sin and turned from his sin, and how God lovingly forgave and restored him. He isn't going to waste his pain. He's going to use it for the benefit of other people. Over the last 23 years, here at Living Water, I've seen this happen on numerous occasions. Christian men and women have sinned greatly. In many cases, some of their sin was pretty close to what David did. And like King David, their sin devastated them. 
Their sin devastated their families. Their sin de- devastated their friends. Their sin was, was painful and embarrassing. But rather than running from God in fear and shame or doubling down on our sin, causing even more destruction, They instead turned to God in humility and in faith and repentance. And they knew they had nothing to offer God but brokenness and contrition. And so that's what they did. And God in his goodness does exactly what, what David proclaims in verse 17. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God took the sin and wiped it clean. And in return, David was going to share his story. And in return here at Living Water, people have shared their stories. You have seen the stories at baptism. You have seen the stories with people standing up front on this stage, taking what would be unbelievable risks and confessing what they had done and how God had restored them. Don't waste your pain. When God redeems it, use it for others. Use it to to be a warning to others. Use it to be an encouragement to others. Use it to bring glory and honor to the God of the universe. And I, I don't know. I know where some of you are today, but I don't know where all of you are today. But if you're stuck in sin, whatever that might be, however big, however small, recognize it's God's desire to free us from that stuff. It's his desire for us to come and to repent and to turn to him and to turn away from that sin. And he will do exactly what he promises. He will will come and, and he will take our broken spirit, our broken and contrite heart, and he will not despise that. He will be faithful because he is faithful and true. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, as we reflect upon David's words in Psalm 51, we humbly ask that your spirit would bring to our minds the the areas in our individual lives that, that fall short from your holy standard. Lord God, would you reveal to me my hidden sin? Would you reveal to others their hidden sin? just as the prophet Nathan revealed David's hidden sins. May we, like David, repent of those sins. Would you give us broken spirits, broken and contrite hearts, so that we might be restored to a right relationship with you, which is only possible for the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross as a a sacrifice for our sins, which are many and who rose from the dead so that we might have eternal life in him. Do that, God, please, in our lives. Do that in the lives of our loved ones. Do that in the lives of those who are in our church family, dear God. And Lord, now as we uh, prepare to take this offering, dear Jesus, would you, uh, would you bless uh, those who come to this place to give? Lord, for those who who give personally here or in person, who uh, give through the mail, who give online, dear God, would you, uh, Lord, would you just be an encouragement to them? Thank you, dear Jesus, for their generosity. Lord, for those who are in this place and desire to give but are 
struggled to figure out how to do that, dear Jesus, I pray that you would, would provide for them, that, Lord, you would give them the, the trust they need to, to know that you, uh, Lord, you are faithful and kind, and, Lord, that you provide for all of our needs. Lord, you are so good to us. Help this church to always be wise stewards of these resources. Lord, using them always for your glory and for your goodness, not for our own. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.